Good evening, everybody. We are um, <clears throat> actually need to pick up where we left off last week. And so hopefully you still have the handout. If not, we just have two final sections. Uh, last week we were talking about the Kingdom Manifesto, and we were looking particularly at uh, the Sermon on the Mount and asking what does this sermon, how does this sermon instruct us in terms of how we need to live our lives. Um, and so that's, uh, that, that's basically where we've been going. And so we spent some time talking about the Sermon on the Mount itself. Uh, and the fact that Jesus is describing, and I think this is absolutely critical, that Jesus is describing life under his rule under or, or in his kingdom. And one of the primary things that Jesus is asking of us, um, is calling us to, as we follow him, is a uh, level of righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And that text is usually skipped over. Um, sometimes we love to label all sins as the same, or we love to consider um, ourselves as no better than anyone else. And I get the humility in that. I understand that and I appreciate that. But one of my concerns for a very, very long time is that as we talk about life in the kingdom, as we talk about our walk with God, if we were to hear other people describe ourselves, it doesn't sound very attractive. Now, I'm not for lying. I'm not for trying to make something better than it actually is. But you actually don't hear the Apostle Paul say things like, you know, I'm really no different than I was before I found Jesus. You know, I'm, you know, he does say he's the worst of sinners, but look at that in its context. He is absolutely amazed at the great grace of God. So he's not saying my life hasn't changed, the Holy Spirit coming into me has given me no additional strength. He doesn't talk like that. He doesn't say I'm no better than my unbelieving neighbor. I think the Apostle Paul would consider such things um, heresy, actually. I think he'd consider them absolutely wrong. So it's not about us pretending or proclaiming to be better than we are. It is about us being very honest about the Holy Spirit's, convi Holy Spirit's conviction in our hearts and in our minds, but it is also about us surrendering to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, being obedient to him in all things, and then experiencing transformation. And I have never quite understood, I, I, well, I shouldn't say that. I think I understand why Christians are careful to talk about it. And a little bit has to do with this sermon, right? If you pray, pray in your closet. If you give, don't let anyone else know. If you fast, don't let anybody else know. But let me tell you a time when I realized that although Jesus says those things and means them, we also, how many of you have heard of a time in Jesus's life when he fasted? Anybody know the famous story? Did Jesus violate his own principle then? So what Jesus is describing in the Sermon on the Mount is an attitude of, let me impress you with my fasting. And that is, that's what he's condemning. But his disciples knew when he was fasting. So Jesus didn't hide it. He says, just don't flaunt it. It's that attitudinal change that really describes a disciple of Jesus Christ as different than a Pharisee, okay? And here's where I learned it. I want to challenge you as moms and dads and, and brothers and sisters. Um, fasting is something that I became interested in a number of years ago. I know by looking at me, you would say, wow, really? Um, I get it. I hear it. Um, but actually, it is something that I have become, became very interested in a number of years ago, probably when I was in graduate school. Um, and I remember I've, I've done some rather even lengthy fasts. And I was, uh, I usually don't tell, my wife always knows because it's always awkward when I'm not eating and why are you not eating? And then it's, okay, so I usually tell my wife. My boys were of the age when I was teaching at the college. My boys were of the age where it was just kind of weird. The dad would be home at supper and not eating anything. And it was, I was, I was a pretty long fast. And so I just said to the boys, I said, wow, you know, um, let me just explain what's going on. And I'm explaining to them the biblical idea. They, they, they're just like, whoa, wait a second. 
You're not gonna eat <laughs> breakfast or lunch or supper or breakfast or lunch or something. And, they're, and they're, they're just, they couldn't believe this. And they wanted to know why. And I began to explain to them kind of the biblical uh, precedent for this. And then his, this was really shook me um, was they said, wow, dad, like, have you ever done this before? And I realized that on the one hand, here's what I'd done a great job, hiding it from my sons. And then on the bad side of that was what? I had hid it from my sons. And then I had never really taught them, not about you have to fast, but that this becomes a part of what our spiritual, the church has always had an interest in prayer and fasting and solitude. These things are part of a, of a, of a, of a Christian's life. And here I am trying to protect it to adhere to this principle and then at the same time violating another principle which is train up your children. Explain to them why these um, things matter. Like on the one hand, I'd hate for me to always worry, look kids, I'm reading my Bible. Look, I'm reading my Bible again. Isn't daddy, I mean, that's the wrong way to do it. But imagine if your kids have no recollection of you ever reading your Bible, of you never really praying, of you never really like something's broken there, isn't it? So it's not to do your deeds before men that they might praise you, but in the Sermon on the Mount, what does Jesus say? That they might see your good deeds before men and what? Give praise to your heavenly Father. And so we always need to, hey, are, why are you doing this, Randy? Why are you going on these mission trips, uh, you know, Phil? Why are you doing, we, we would have those healthy conversations to keep us positionally humble. That would be good. On the other hand, how many of you have been greatly encouraged by wonderful, faithful acts of brothers and sisters in Christ and you're glad you saw it? See? So that's where that issue comes into play. So we are in Matthew chapter seven. I just wanna cover it. I'm gonna divide it up into two sections. I don't know if you have your notes from last week, but I wanna look at verses one through 20 and kind of lumping these together. And again, I'm taking John Stott's uh, breakdown of this Sermon on the Mount, um, even though I've changed a few words in there, here and there. But I wanna call this next section the responsibilities of a disciple, the responsibilities of a disciple. And uh, the beginning of this chapter in chapter seven is one of the most famous uh, sections that uh, people love to quote today, do not judge lest ye be judged for by the manner by which you do judge that is the manner that we judge to you um, and so this becomes a responsibility that you and I have as followers of Jesus Christ to not judge it's a responsibility that we have do not judge or you too will be judged and yet in the same context this is why it's good to look at what he's saying and not just to take a few verses and then use them at the expense of others a few verses later he says listen and by the way do not cast these wonderful things before pigs or dogs or else they will turn and attack you question how do i know someone is a dog or a pig what do i need to do at first judge so Jesus is describing clearly a non-judgmental attitude or a non-judgmental spirit, but how many, this has become almost the verse of our age, and I don't mean in a good way. Do not judge, you can't judge me. I remember the first time I, I really began to realize something was wrong when Madonna was using it. Now hear me, I understand why she was using it. But what I find fascinating is some of the most judgmental people are actually people that are at the same time claiming, you better not judge me. 
uh, there was actually a, uh, a very interesting Facebook conversation I got into uh, just a few months ago. I'm trying to wean myself off of that, okay? It's a bit of an addiction. Hi, I'm Jim, and sometimes I get on Facebook, okay? But it was a, it was a friend of mine, um, not from here, and so we're having this, I'm, I'm, I'm following her along a little bit, and she had this quote by some rather recent philosopher, I believe, I didn't know the name, and um, the statement was, the best way to get through life is to offer no judgment or commentary on anything that anybody ever does. I'm thinking, wow, I don't even know how to do that. And then right afterwards, it was around the time that the Ashley Madison stuff had come out and um, the Duggar situation had been exposed again and um, a lot of people are rallying around the young lady that is married to the young man who's the Duggar and this big long tirade was written down about how this woman had been exploited and how terrible it was. And, and so I'm, I'm, I'm looking at these two Facebook posts. Number one, don't ever have a thought or a judgment and then this long tirade about how we need to help this young lady. And so I'm trying to, uh, to ask this person, like, do you realize the inconsistency that you're exposing here? And she, well, don't you understand this girl? I said, no, 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 I'm not arguing with you on, on what you're saying about this young girl, but you seem to have a lot of opinions about her. And yet, right before it, and I said, so are what you're saying, and I'm just asking, is that on any of your attitudes or opinions, you do not want to be judged or evaluated, but you have tons for everybody else. Is that what you're saying? And she said to me, and she was very humble, she said to me, wow, I didn't realize how much I guessed either I had changed or I was off on that. So I love the words of Jesus Christ. Do not judge, lest you be judged. For if you do judge, the standards by which you judge, you will be judged by. That's really what Jesus is getting at here. It's that same concept that he talks about very deeply. As you're dealing with the speck in your brother's eye, take the log out of your own. There is this profound sense of, of self-awareness, accurate self-awareness that Jesus is calling us to in the Sermon on the Mount. And so that becomes one of the primary responsibilities that we have to avoid and this is a kind of a major theme within the Sermon on the Mount, to avoid hypocrisy. The next major section, that, in terms of a responsibility that we have, is to ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened to you. He talks about the goodness of God. We have a responsibility to seek after him, to, to ask him for things, and to recognize just how good God is. Something that we, we, um, we in the non-charismatic branches of the church overlook, we undervalue. Um, and again, sadly enough, probably out of a reaction against those churches who find this incessant need to claim material things, we've decided, no, we're not gonna claim anything, we'll show you. And yet the Bible speaks very profoundly that if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask. That God will answer your prayers. Jesus says that if you go to someone in confronting of their sin, know that I will be there with you. So there's lots of, of engagement that Jesus asks us to recognize his presence or to call out for his actions. And so just because a few may misappropriate their prayers due to a prosperity gospel does not mean that we don't have an incredible responsibility to make sure that we follow the instructions here in the Sermon on the Mount. And then you have the wonderful golden rule. And then as things are kind of rounding out in that last section before verse 20, you actually have the, 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 incredible, the incredible statement that when you look at a tree, you will know a tree by its fruit. That there's no disparity between that. That you can tell, and obviously you know what he's talking about, right? You can know a person or a Christian by their fruit. 
Now again, hear me, um, in this particular sermon, as well as in the Gospel of Matthew, it is very proverbial. Um, and so every proverb is to be understood as exactly that, a proverb, a general truth. Uh, one of the greatest lessons that I actually had in regards to this idea of being um, even good fruit inspector. So in the context of don't judge also, but you will know a tree by its fruit. Well, how do I do that without judging? Well, you will have to judge. But when you do, remember that when you do judge, take the, take the speck or the log out of your own eye before you look at I mean, that's the context here, Right. But as he is describing this, um, this fruit inspection thing, a number of years ago, we were doing some work through the book of Galatians. And I asked, I think it was Kylie was my assistant at the time. I asked Kylie, some of you may remember this. I asked Kylie to set up two baskets of fruit up front and to try to set them up by finding real fruit that matched like artificial fruit. And I walked in and I could not tell the difference until I got really close. And it kind of scared me a little bit because I'm thinking my illustration is you can obviously tell the difference between these two. And by the time I'm looking at it that Sunday morning, I'm thinking, Kylie, you've really kind of hurt my sermon here. And yet I thought to myself later on, wow, this, this may even be, I don't, Jesus, okay, Jesus knew about artificial fruit, but I don't think he's trying to teach about artificial fruit in this text. Um, but one of the things that I learned about that was that Jesus' statement is still true. And so maybe we need to be careful making mass judgments about people that we don't know very well. But I'm always still absolutely astounded at people who are not trying to be kind or gracious or humble, but people who are either not discerning or are cowardly. When I ask simple questions like, is so-and-so, do you even see them as a believer? And I'm not saying, you know, I'm not asking you about like some movie star. If you, you know, we're not trying to make assessments on people we don't know, but I, I love to ask that question, especially when people say, will you pray for? I need to know who I'm praying for. Are they a believer? I don't know. Well, isn't it your mom? Yeah. Don't you ever talk to her every day? And you have no idea whether or not she's a believer. Well, I mean, you know, it's complicated. Okay. But you know her. Yeah. Like really well. Oh yeah. But you can't tell if she's a follower of Jesus. So again, you may not want to have this conversation with me, but when I ask is when you, and you and is, I'm not, I'm not trying to be an investigator. I'm not trying to, not trying to be that guy. But when someone begins to have a very real conversation about someone they're concerned about or someone I need to pray about and, and I know you're close to them. And when I ask, you know, are they a believer? And I get this, well, I go, oh, okay. I'm gonna say no. And not, by the way, I am not the final judge. <laughs> and I'm glad I'm not the final judge. I never think for that I, can ever, I can't make the final statement on anything. I can only speak to that which God has already spoken. But one of the things that Jesus makes very, very clear is that there is a way that a follower of him looks, smells, tastes. There is something that is distinct about them. And for some reason, right now in our culture, we are so afraid. I've, I've been found it very fascinating um, when Dr. Carson recently, who has been saying some bold statements, and then saying, hey, listen, like, if this costs me, it costs me. I'm not changing my opinion. That's my opinion. I'm not going to be politically correct on that. I kind of like that fresh uh, air that's kind of breathed onto a particular subject. I just love the, uh, the you know what, this is just the way it is. And I think sometimes we're so afraid. We're just so afraid. I think, A, we need to remember humility. We need to remember the standard by which we use will be used against us. I think we need to be deep in prayer about it. I think we need to have very, uh, I, I like even the idea of having like our emotions tied up in this. 
that I'm not making random comments about people that I don't care about, but people that I'm praying over and that I'm agonizing over in terms of their walk with Jesus Christ. That's what we are called to be. And in that sense, we should be able to know if someone is or is not a believer. Next, and lastly, the resolution of a disciple in the kingdom. And I love this resolution. First of all, what we see beginning in verse 21 and down through verse 23 is that there are people, by the way, who can look like it on the outside. And, I, and again, this, you almost think that these two verses go uh, against one another. I don't think they do. Um, I, I really do believe that Jesus is describing that there are those particular within the Pharisaical tradition which could extend all the way to today in the Pharisaical tradition that are doing certain things but not obeying the Lord, okay? Because they're, hey, didn't we do this? Didn't we do this? And what Jesus ultimately says is, I will declare ultimately that I do not know you because, and what is, what is the issue here? It's not that they're even doing everything. Jesus, Jesus actually says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And I would, even, I would even propose that one of the things that Jesus is describing in this, the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, it is to follow his Son, which is Jesus. So I think that's a little bit of what's going to be implied here in the end, is you got a lot of people going, hey, didn't I do everything you wanted? Wasn't I nice? Wasn't I kind? Did you follow Jesus? Why do I need him? No, we need him. Okay, that's our gospel message. We need Jesus. And then he uh, talks about this, this, uh, this important need that we have, uh, the, 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 the determination to build our lives on the teachings of Jesus Christ. The famous story of building your house on the rock or building your house on the sand. And that is um, kind of how Jesus wraps up this incredible sermon, describing his teachings. Anyone who listens to these teachings of mine and builds his life on these, when the storms come, when there are difficulties, then the building stands. But if you build your house on the sand, on teachings other than mine, then you will be swept away in it all. And then the last of the sermon, which I find very interesting, um, is that the, the response, this is actually found a number of times in Matthew's gospel, he uses this, is he describes the attitude of the crowds or the people after Jesus had spoken. I want, you to, I want to kind of wrap up by taking a look at this. He says in verse 28, and when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teachings, and here's why, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. And do you know what that means? It's not that he was clever, although he was. It's not that he was insightful, although he was. It was that he was speaking. If you look at the, the formula of this statement, he was speaking not dependent upon others' authorities, but claiming an authority that was radically different than anyone else. So the scribes in their day would say, hi, my name is Rabbi Jim, and I follow Rabbi Tom. And let me tell you why we need to do this, because Rabbi Tom said, okay, that Rabbi Paul said that Rabbi, that, that's kind of how they would play the game. And so they're building their case by extrapolating ideas on top of ideas on top of ideas. And what does Jesus say in the sermon? You've heard that it is said to you, but I say, and by the way, you've also heard this, but I say unto you, and the people are drawn to this authoritative word that Jesus is giving that is, by the way, in line with what the scriptures teach. He's not trying to go against the scriptures. Matthew 5, he says, no, I'm speaking in accordance with these things. And the people are amazed. And the people are amazed. 
And I would even say this. I've confessed this many, many times, and I've felt um, uh, somewhat frustrated to even mildly depressed about it. The number of times I have particularly parented my children And instead of offering them biblical truth that they could build their lives on, I find myself giving advice. And yet Jesus gives some pretty profound instructions right in this text about how to live our lives. And so my challenge to you would be this. Um, when you look at these particular standards, and so let me, let me just kind of read this last section here. Are we expected to merely admire the sermon's unattainable standards? Are these words exceptional demands to a specific audience long since past? Are we expected to embody the perpetual tension between Jesus' ideal and our current reality? And it's that last one that I believe we're supposed to do. Um, Last week, I ended with that challenge of um, uh, me constantly asking, like, Jesus, how am I demonstrating these truths? How am I living out these truths? Um, And so often, I'm I'm amazed at the number of times I hear others, and I I promise you, log in my own eye, speck in yours. Um, When I hear others say, you know, these are these deep convictions that I have. I know it's wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway. Big or small. I know it's wrong, but I just really got to do it. And I'm thinking to myself, like that is one of the most, probably the most unchristian thing a person could say. Is I know that this is against the will of God. I know this is wrong, but this is what I need to do. Like I know that, but I, but I need to, I, I cannot think of anything that is more unfollower of Jesus-like than to know that which is right and to have the Spirit's conviction about that which is right and to know what Jesus teaches and say, but this is what I have to do for my own happiness, for my own sanity, for my own base, guttural, natural response to the circumstances around me. I'm sorry, I'm only human, I gotta do it. I just, something is flawed in that. And as my dad would always say, I can understand why unbelievers without the Holy Spirit might act like that. I just don't know how believers act like that. And sometimes I act like that. And I need to repent and stop acting like that and building my life upon the truth. The great quote of John R. W. Stott um, at the very end there, the standards of the Sermon on the Mount are neither attainable or are neither readily attainable by everyone nor totally unattainable by anyone. And I love to live in the tension of what the Sermon on the Mount has both called me to be and I can't just say, you know what? Too hard. No, you have the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit. I, I love to be reminded by this when, when people are making um, uh, kind of very specific claims about what they either can or cannot do, but particularly what they cannot do. And so they've made this other choice. And I love to ask this question. I wanna challenge you to think through this personally and then to think through this as you're helping others. How do you need the Holy Spirit to accomplish what you are about to do? Like how do you become more dependent on the very existence and the presence of God in your life? Do you need the Holy Spirit to do that? And and most times, I mean, when, when people are wrestling with this, the answer is no. And actually, the Holy Spirit will do nothing but get in the way of what I'm trying to do. Give up on a relationship, not forgive. Act in out of fear. Yeah, the Holy Spirit, you don't want him when you're trying to do that kind of stuff. The Holy Spirit moves in a completely different direction. He, he emboldens, he empowers, uh, he comes in and he fulfills, he strengthens, he brings peace, right? And I'm, not, I'm not trying to say that's just, I'm, I don't believe in magic, I believe in God. 
I don't believe in magic. I believe in the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit to enable us to live this kingdom life as Jesus describes. So, there we go. Now, grab this week's handout. It is entitled, A Kingdom Taken and a Kingdom Given. A Kingdom Taken and a Kingdom Given. And we are going to begin kind of a longer section talking about um, certain parables that Jesus teaches to describe about this incredible kingdom. Whenever we discuss, and I have been guilty of this for years, whenever we discuss a parable, most preachers, including this one here, log in mine, speck in yours, I uh, love to talk about. Now, don't you love the parables of Jesus? Because he's so witty. He's so insightful. He's so just really kind of down to earth. Don't, who, who doesn't love the parable of the sower? And so that's kind of how I approach a lot of his parables. Like somehow Jesus is this master teacher and a parable becomes a master tool, master methodology. I don't know, I don't disagree with anything I said except for the fact that the parables as Jesus describes them himself when he's asked the question, why do you tell parables? I want you to listen to this first sentence here. Jesus tells parables two for two reasons. Number one, to reveal to you a, a biblical, a, a divine truth. I want you to see it. And by the way, when I say you, I don't mean all of you. Literally, what Jesus does is he shows, he reveals the real naked truth about God or about the kingdom or about something like that. And there's a lot of people, um, what, what was, what's it called, the, the ma magic eye, magic art, you know, when you're trying to look for something and you can't see it because it's all like blurry and then all of a sudden, ah, there's the dolphin, right? You know what I'm talking about? So you're, you, you see this picture, we're all seeing it. And who sees the dolphin? Who sees the dolphin? I don't see the dolphin. I just see all these, I don't see it. I don't see it. Do you see it? Well, try to look past it. Just, you know, just kind of like let your eyes go out of focus a little bit. I still, I mean, how many of you have a hard time seeing those things, right? Yeah. Okay, well, you might have a hard time understanding Jesus' parables if there's a correlation. So, but the basic idea is this, is that that shocks us. But Jesus says, as he quotes in Matthew 13, where he gives a big chunk of parabolic teaching about the kingdom, which we'll come to uh, in the weeks to come. But Jesus, when he's asked, why do you do it? He says, so that some might see and that some might not see. That's why. Really? Like you're telling parables with the express purpose of concealing the truth. And his answer, I mean, you take it up with him. His answer is yes, is yes. Now we can go, we're gonna talk about those that appear to have the truth, the amazing truth of God. Why is it or how is it concealed? I'm gonna do my best to approach that a little bit, but Jesus in Matthew 13 and also in, in Mark and Luke, he kind of retells it. He is quoting Isaiah um, and in Isaiah chapter six, he is describing this amazing encounter um, that Isaiah has with the Lord. And it's in the middle of that encounter that we see this truth that I want you to preach to these people so that they don't hear and that they don't see. Like what? Yeah. Like this is how God, but God's not, hear me. I don't think God's a, he doesn't play games. He's not manipulative in any stretch of the imagination. But uh, going back and even seeing how God deals with Pharaoh, uh, I love the reminder, we cannot, we cannot fool around with God. I do not believe, and I won't, I won't blame it on any generation because I think it's a universal condition of the human race. We cannot play around with the righteousness and the holiness and the power and the majesty of the creator. 
and to just blindly assume that somehow he owes us is a fundamental flaw that I think is as old as the, as the human race. So, I don't believe that parables are merely a teaching tool, but something that is designed to evaluate the heart as it informs the mind. I want to evaluate the heart as it informs the mind. That's kind of the way I uh, like to describe a parable. It's, it's almost like, uh, going back, I love to say this to my kids, my dad said it to me a lot, that as we, you've heard me say this, as we evaluate things, the things that we say about that thing which we're evaluating may be a clearer reflection on us than the thing that we want to critique. So when Jesus offers words about the kingdom and some Pharisee walks by and goes, well, that's dumb, Who's dumb? Like, who's the one that's wrong in this instance? I hear a lot of people that want to make commentary on Jesus and on his teaching. And who's the one really being evaluated in that moment? That's the part I want us to see, is that when God makes a statement and then you decide to correct the statement, who's being evaluated in that moment? And that's what parables actually do. So before we get into these parables about this this kingdom that we have, uh, this kingdom that we see, And in this kingdom, what we will notice is that it's going to be taken from, taken from and then given to someone else. And we're going to talk about what that means. And there's no way to have this conversation without dealing with the questions about Israel and the church. So this could be an entire session on itself, uh, but instead I'm gonna walk through it rather quickly. Um, And by the way, this could easily, um, if you wanted to have a longer conversation, we could spend the next six months at Panera every day and continue it if you'd like. I would actually rather enjoy that. But God entrusted the descendants of Abraham with the promise that one day he would bless the whole world through one ancestor. And that would actually be, you see that in both Genesis 12 as well as Galatians. The Apostle Paul picks up, picks up on the statement that it's not through his seeds, meaning all of his offspring, but through his seed. Paul makes a big deal in Galatians 3 about that. Therefore, the nation of Israel was responsible to keep their covenant with God and prepare the way for the Messiah, which is also translated the anointed one, which is best understood as the king of the kingdom. So God says, listen, I'm going to give you a land, I'm going to give you this place, I'm going to give you this incredible message about who I am, this covenant to, to Abraham through Moses and through David, so that the Messiah, the king of the world, might actually be born. And what did they do with that? Three things. Ezekiel 3 says this, that God gave them the responsibility, and he gives this both to Ezekiel, but Israel is kind of has that similar responsibility, is that God gives leaders over his people the responsibility to keep watch. Ezekiel 3 gives the analogy of a man who is on the wall of a city who is looking for physical armies, physical danger, and he will sound the alarm, they close the gate, they get ready for besiegement, Okay? And what God is saying there is that's the same responsibility that he gave Ezekiel as the spiritual watchman. It's the same responsibility that he gave parents in Deuteronomy 5 and 6 as the spiritual watchman. It's that same responsibility that God gave the shepherds or the leaders of Israel to guard the entrustment that he had given them in the covenantal responsibility to be faithful to him. And what did the watchmen do? They didn't watch. They didn't care. 
They didn't look. They were not diligent. And by the way, the response of this is what? If you are to keep watch and you do not warn, then the blood is on your own head. If you give a warning and they fail to heed your warning, then may the blood be on that person's head. That is the analogy that he has given. And the leaders of Israel particularly failed as watchmen. And so here is the indictment. Therefore, the blood of the people, since you did not warn them, is on your own head. Heavy. Ezekiel chapters 13 and 14, you actually see this amazing challenge that the prophet Ezekiel gives regarding this incessant need that the people of Israel have and then the leaders actually have to follow in chapter 13, false prophets... In chapter 13, by the way, this, there are parts of the story of God that we see in the Old Testament um, that we don't share very often, and we probably should. Uh, there, are, there, are, there are fascinating stories where God says, you know, occasionally I'll send you a prophet, and I'll send you a false one to see if you're paying attention. You know what the Bible says that? I'll put a lying spirit in him, and then see what happens. Would God ever do that? Well, just clear, it said he did that in Ezekiel. By the way, he doesn't leave us not being able to discern. No, no, no. He speaks first. He gives us his word first. He doesn't set us up for failure. But in the end, God says, yeah, this is what I'm going to do. And then in, chapters four, in chapter 14 of the book of Ezekiel, after it describes, man, you guys love false prophets. This is the warning that I'm always, I mean, I, I, again, I have this kind of, Ugh, I wonder if that's me. But we, we line up prophets that say to us what we want to hear. You know, I think this is so true. Man, we just, abs- and when I say we, again, I think this is a, a universal human problem, is that we love to surround ourselves with people who are going to tell us what we want to hear. And we remove people who are going to speak painful hydrogen peroxide kind of truth into our lives. Bubbles to the surface. Oh, I hate that one. No, I want people that will tell me what I want to hear. I want to surround myself with friends that are going to remind me of what I want to hear because I can't be the problem, and this is a, a way that even leaders work. How do I continue to propagate the lies that I believe, the lifestyle that I've chosen, or whatever it might be, by surrounding myself with people? And in Ezekiel 14, he accuses the religious leaders of taking all of these idols and saying, okay, I'm going to clear my, my life of all of these outward idols. But in Ezekiel 14, Ezekiel says, God speaking through him, that you've taken all these idols and you've moved them into your heart. I think it was John Calvin that actually said that it is the human heart uh, where, where idols are manufactured on a regular basis. And that's true. We, we manufacture idols. We don't need Baal or Asherah or Dagon or Moloch. I can have my own about sex and money and power and marriage and I can manufacture my own. I don't need pretend statues of stone or wood or clay. Um, Whatever it is that I find my identity in, my purpose in, my happiness in, my meaning in, whenever there is something that without it I think I'm going to die, then that is the idol. And he is warning against leaders within uh, Israel that you can look good on the outside, but your hearts inwardly are corrupted because that's where the idols have moved. And then lastly, Ezekiel 34, I thought the book of Ezekiel would be kind of an interesting indictment against poor leadership. In Ezekiel 34, there are wicked shepherds 
who see harassed and hurting people, who see those who have tremendous need, and their only response is to take care of themselves. They become fat while the people around them are starving, predominantly spiritually, but I think in the book of Ezekiel, many indictments against exploitation of the poor, so there are always physical ramifications as well. And we see these indictments. You want false prophets telling what you want to hear. You've moved these factories inside of your own heart. You're not being a good watchman. And, and basically you're exploiting those leaders around you. And, and those are the indictments that we actually are going to see here in a moment that Jesus makes against the leaders of Israel. The next section that we actually see as we think about a kingdom that is taken and then a kingdom that is given is the church and the kingdom. There is a lot of debate over the role of Israel and the church in God's kingdom plan. Some consider the purposes and the promises to Israel as very separate and distinct from the purposes and the promises of the church. Others see the church as the fulfillment, okay? Not the, some would use the word replacement, but I don't like that word, but the fulfillment. In, in essence, God has always had, this is kind of how I would uh, look at the subject matter, is that God has always been working through Worked through Abraham, not that he was the first, but just running out of time. Abraham leads that to the nation of Israel, through the nation of Israel, and then the coming of Jesus Christ, because that is absolutely like paramount. Now the message which begins narrow, which grows, now reaches through Jesus Christ to the whole world. That is how I see biblical teachings is that this is the, the, the plan of God. So it's not a replacement. It's not, you know, Israel goes down here or this is even a no. No, no, no. I mean, Peter, Paul, James, John, I mean, they're all Jews. They're from the Jewish heritage, but they find their ultimate meaning in Jesus Christ as they then proclaim to the rest of the world. I would give you some really good texts on this. Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus has his wonderful um, uh, conversation with Peter in terms of who do you say that I am and by the time he's done he says listen um, you will have the keys to the kingdom of heaven in your hand whoever you forgive they will be forgiven whoever you do not forgive they will not be forgiven Jesus then goes on later on in Matthew chapter 16 verses 27 and 28 he actually says and there are some here who will not see who will not see death until they see the son of man coming in his kingdom and in his glory so I don't think the kingdom of God, the problem is, is that if we see Israel and the church as two distinct and separate plans, then when is the kingdom going to come? And there are theologians that argue the kingdom will come when Jesus Christ returns. And right now we don't have a kingdom. And I'm saying that doesn't match up with Matthew 16 as well. The disciples asked the question in Acts 1, is it at this time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus says, well, first of all, it's not for you to know the times and the dates, but you will be my witnesses. He's answering the question. You will be my witnesses in uh, Samaria and in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He's answering his question. The kingdom is coming when it comes, when the Holy Spirit comes on you and in power. And let me just read to you a couple of very important verses. Um, I, I love the Apostle Paul's answer to this question because here we have somebody who is profoundly Jewish, right? You don't want to get into an argument on on Paul whether or not he thinks he's Jewish. In the book of Philippians, he goes off on how Jewish he is. And so he'll do that a number of times. But listen to what the apostle Paul says about Israel and the church. Um, and, and I don't want to pit them against each other, 
I wanna see God's ultimate plan and the work of Jesus Christ through it. So Galatians 3, verses 28 and 29, the Apostle Paul says this, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, there is no male nor female, for you now are all one in Christ Jesus, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring according to his promise. So his understanding there is what? Not, I, I don't get the two distinct plan thing. Paul seems to argue rather strongly, if you are faithful to Jesus Christ, and he is the one who is the promise, then you are Abraham's child. Um, another great text um, that you can take a look at is Ephesians chapter two. And in Ephesians chapter two, this is how the apostle Paul describes our relationship here um, in Jesus Christ. He goes on and he says, beginning in verse, uh, where will I wanna start? Verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once were far off, that would be the Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law and the commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so that making peace he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, therefore killing the hostility. So he goes on to describe this amazing work that Jesus Christ did. So it's not, we are neither Jew nor Gentile, but we are what? We are one in Jesus Christ. And so the church, not at the expense of Israel, or not even at the expense of the Jewish people, um, but deeply indebted for those who continue to have a Jewish heritage that then I also share this greater heritage, which would be through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. So that is kind of the, the basics that I want to hold on to. Uh, let me just kind of, uh, as we uh, wrap up, I want you to turn to Matthew's gospel and I want to look at these three parables in a row that describe what Jesus is doing. Um, and I'll explain to you a little bit in terms of why it matters so much. If you remember two weeks ago, I believe, I think it was two weeks ago, I was sharing with you um, one of the major concerns that those who um, have a, a Jewish ethnicity, uh, one of the reasons why they do not believe Jesus is the Messiah. And one of the ones, which I, it may have struck you as kind of at first a little bit weird, and then I bet you as you ruminated on it, you thought, well, that actually makes a lot of sense. Here's one of the presuppositions that a, uh, that a, a typical Jewish person, person would actually hold is that the when the Messiah comes, the one thing that would not happen is that he would be rejected by the Jewish people. Okay, that, that wouldn't happen, right? And I can, I can understand what they're saying. Like, what are the chances that God would send his Messiah to his people and then they would reject him? That doesn't make any sense at all. Why would God even do that? So the fact, this is interesting, the fact that Jesus Christ was in fact rejected by the Jews becomes a strong reason for Jews today to reject Jesus. Do you get the logic? Do you follow that? Well, what's interesting is this idea of a kingdom taken and then a kingdom given, um, it's really not taken from Israel and given to the church. It's taken from the religious leaders of Jesus' day and given to whoever will accept it. I don't even believe that he took it from the Jews and gave it to the Gentiles. No, 
He took it from those that he had entrusted with the responsibility of being over the shepherds of Israel and because of their denial, because of their rejection, he gave it to fishermen. He gave it to a tax collector. He gave it to, um, uh, to an unsuspecting uh, rabbi who was uh, kind of early on in his teaching career uh, blinding him on the road to Damascus, right? I mean, these are the people that Jesus gave this kingdom to. And then through their proclamation, by the grace of God, I'm grateful it came down to me, okay? But it's not about Jew or Gentile. It's about taking it from those who rejected it and then giving it, as God promised back in Genesis chapter 12, to the entire world. So let's take a look at these three parables, all given in a row. And it's interesting, they all answer this overall question. Jesus gets into a debate with some religious leaders. They wanted to debate with him until they got into the debate with him. And then it was always awkward for them. And sometimes, uh, I love this, sometimes Jesus would again act like my father and go, you know what, I'm not talking to you right now. You know what, I, I just, I'm not. This is just going nowhere. So son, we'll, we'll wait till you uh, get a better attitude or we'll wait till something's gotta change. And it used to drive me crazy. No, dad, you gotta listen to me. I will, just not right today, son, okay? And so Jesus actually will do that sometimes. And so when you look at this particular, the first parable is found in Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 28. It's the parable of the two sons. They've challenged Jesus' authority and Jesus says, well, let me ask you a question. They won't, they won't answer his question. So he kind of, in essence, it looks like he gives up on them and then he starts posing some questions through the use of parables. What do you think? A man had two sons and he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he said, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I will go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? And they said, the first. And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him and even when you saw it, you did not afterwards change your minds and believe him. And so you have these stories of the two sons some one, son one who said no and then did, son two who said I would and then didn't. And the question is which one, going, it's kind of neat that we ended with the Sermon on the Mount just kind of as a hangover from last week, which one is the one that God rewards, that God honors? The one who says and doesn't do or the one who at first blows it and then says or then goes and does? And the answer is it's the second one. Or sorry, it's the first one. It's the one who says, I, I'm not going to do it, but in the end realizes I need to change. And this is one of the, the major teachings that Jesus is constantly hitting these Pharisees with. It's like, listen, I know that you think you are. I know that you want to. I know that you keep saying you're doing these things, but your heart is hard that you do not have a responsive heart to the things of God. Um, I, I would put off to the side of this, it's one of my favorite um, sections in the scriptures. It's actually found in Luke chapter 18. It's the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector before God. And the one, the Pharisee, goes before God and he prays. Literally, it's, it says in the Greek, like in himself or to himself. God, thank you for not making me like this terrible person. And the ta this, 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 this tax collector, on the other hand, will not even raise his hands to heaven, but he says, God, have mercy on me a sinner. And Jesus says, which ones do you think, which one of these two do you think went home justified 
And the answer is the one who understood who he was before God. And that becomes critical. And so Jesus is using this this accusation against them that the, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, those who at first did not follow God but yet had a repentant heart, they are getting in before you. This is a wonderful proclamation for those of us that may have grown up in church and done a lot of wonderful good things and we're charter members and congratulations and all this stuff and yet our heart on the things of God may have grown cold or may have grown hard. Like there are, I love this, we were kind of in our theology class that we started on Monday night. We were walking through the first 500 years of church history in 45 minutes. But the one major thing that they kept saying over and over and over again is this statement. God has no grandchildren. He just has children, which means this, that everyone deals with God in a repentant position And I just know a lot of people that are kind of even connected to this body that are hoping to ride the coattails of a faithful spouse or a faithful friend or a a faithful parent. Or I know faithful parents who are kind of hoping that they can drag their kids behind them. And let me just be clear to you, the answer to that is no. It doesn't work that way. It never has worked that way. It is about each of us having a responsive heart. And by the way, for those of us that are um, those people that I, I think I did say no to God at first. Anybody know what I'm talking about? I mean, this is kind of the story of the two sons, right? The rebellious one, and then the one who stayed home, the prodigal, and then the one who stayed home. There's, there's some patterns, some, some similarity here. And the, which one got it? The prodigal, the one who left and came back and received grace, or the one who stayed home and had the audacity to say to the father, I will not go in. Really, son, the audacity of you. And so Jesus gives this incredible picture about who he is taking it from and who he is giving it to. And the first story actually is God gives the kingdom. Hear me, we can't claim Gentile, I can't, I can't claim birth if I say birth isn't it. The kingdom goes to who? The repentant. That's who the kingdom goes to. The repentant. Gain the kingdom of God. And by the way, it's his kingdom. So sometimes we want to talk about kingdom like, hey, do I get to be the king? No, 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 that's already been decided. <laughs> right? So this isn't about us receiving power. It is about us receiving the joy of living in the kingdom of God. Next parable, Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 33. Here another parable, there was a master of a house who planted a vineyard, by the way, Isaiah 5, strong picture of Israel as a vineyard. That's how Israel understood itself as a metaphor, as a vineyard, much like America would might see itself as an eagle, or, but to Israel was a vineyard. Put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, built a tower, meaning to protect it, um, and then leased it out to tenants and went out to another country. And when the season for fruit, think of the Sermon on the Mount, the season for the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants, beat one, killed another, and stoned another. And again he sent other servants, more than the first, and they came to them. Finally he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said, come, let us kill him and his inheritance, and and have his inheritance. And they took him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him, which is the same statement that they took Jesus out of the city and crucified him. It's the same construction, which is kind of an interesting parallel there. 
And when, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And now they have to answer. I love this. And they said to him, these are the religious leaders. He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruit of their, in their sessions. And Jesus said, have you, never, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in their eyes. That is a quote from the book of Psalms 118. And what is interesting is this, become a, this became a major verse to prove the deity um, or the more of the messiahship, not necessarily the deity, but the, the messiahship of Jesus. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit of repentance is I believe what he is insinuating there. And when, and the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, they perceived that he was speaking about them, and although they were, seek, and, and although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Astounding to me that they know exactly what he's saying. Going back to that first statement about how parables Reveal and conceal. So wait a second, you, you know that I'm talking about God, uh-huh, you know that the vineyard is Israel, yep. You know I'm talking about you as the bad guys, yep. You know I'm talking about all of these servants as the prophets, yep. You know I'm describing me as the son, uh-huh. And your plan right after this is to kill me, yep. Amazing. It is absolutely, I'm, 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 I'm still probably rather amazed at what a hard, heart will do, at what an unrepentant heart will actually accomplish. So the wicked tenants obviously are the, the leaders of Israel, the servants and the son are the prophets and Jesus. And these new tenants, hear me, again, they're not Gentiles, there are those who respond to the goodness of God. Last parable, one of my favorites, Matthew 22, and so he's just rolling into these, right? got the story of the sons. It's so funny because he's like, I'm not going to tell you by what authority I'm doing this, but let me tell you by what authority I'm doing this with the use of parables. So the disciples are getting this. They're hanging on this. And these religious leaders are being exposed for their own foolishness. Verse 1, we'll go down through the end of verse 14. Again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son, and, his, and, and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. What they would do back in this particular time period is they would send out an invitation. My, my son's getting married, and we want you to come, but there would be no date. The date would, the date would, would, hap, would come actually later. So I want to just let you know. And so they're, I want you to know that there's a wedding that's going to come, and we'll let you know when the date is. And people went, we don't care. We don't want to come. And again, Vineyard Israel Wedding banquet, messianic era is what they would hear. So Jesus knows, or they, the people know, that Jesus is insinuating something about messiahship here. And we can see he is claiming he himself is, in fact, the messiah. They would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited. See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention, and they went off, one to his farm, another to his business. Um, some parents had their kids in sports, and so they weren't able... No, that's not in there. Verse, 
And while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully and killed them. And the king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Now, by the way, some actually say, is that a comparison to what's about to happen in 70 AD? And I would say, I don't know if they're specifically drawing to that because in Jerusalem only the temple was burned. But I think there is clearly uh, some kind of connection. There is in the book of Matthew in particular, but probably in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, a description of God's judgment coming particularly on those who reject the Messiah, uh, reject, reject Jesus as the Messiah, and part of their punishment is the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. I think Matthew 24 teaches this. Uh, Mark and Luke have, have similar uh, in, their, in their own gospels. So notice how this continues on. And then he said to the servants, the wedding feast is ready. Those who are invited are not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding, the wedding feast, as many as you may find. And those servants went out to the roads and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. I'm gonna hold it off there real quick and just kind of run through who these are. Obviously the ungrateful guests are who? Those religious leaders who don't need Jesus because they think they already have God. They don't really need Jesus because they think they have everything already taken care of in terms of their relationship with God. Let me say to you again, I, I think most of us in this room know this, but if you've got an alternative way of dealing with your creator God other than the finished work of Jesus Christ, you're wrong. I say that because I love you, you're wrong. There is no way other than a repentant heart pleading for God's mercy, which only comes through Jesus Christ. Now, by the way, if you've already heard that, then go tell someone that this week. Like, go share that with somebody else. But that's how this works. And so there are those people in this context who don't need Jesus because they've already got their God thing figured out. And they think they're gonna hold on to their religious devotion, by the way. I know a lot of people who probably attend this church who are banking on their religious devotion. That's not biblical, or if it is, it's the Bible describing it as the wrong way to live. It is not my religiosity that impresses the Lord. It is my repentant heart that pleads for, appreciates, is grateful for the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And again, these new invitees, it's not, hey, you know, God's done with Jews. It's Americans' turn and a couple of Canadians, right? That's not what it is. I, I love the fact, and, and this is what I love about the New Testament. The Apostle Paul makes a real big deal about this, and we see Luke in the, in the book of Acts does as well. Jesus, in his first sermon um, at Nazareth, which by the way, we're gonna be in Israel next year, um, May 29th through like, May 28th through uh, May 9th, or June 9th, it's gonna be fun. And we're gonna be at the place where they tried to throw Jesus off the cliff because he had finished preaching, and here was his accusation. Um, you people... Or, or just like the, the kind of what Isaiah had to deal with back in the day, and, or Elijah had to deal with back in the day, um, is that he had to go somewhere else to find someone who would hear him. And a prophet is never honored in his own hometown. There's something dangerous about people who think they already have it all figured out. And it is, a, it is that unteachable spirit that Jesus warns against, and then therefore these new invitees are the ones who appreciate this, those who, are, those who are broken. That's why we are a celebration of the land of misfit people. We celebrate, not in a crude way, but we actually celebrate in a grateful way that the creator of the universe would somehow pick me 
a man who has struggled with my own righteousness and holiness until the point where I realized I cannot do it on my own and I need Jesus. And he's all I have to claim in front of the throne of the mighty creator of the universe. And that's what this parable is teaching. God is gonna take it away from the religious establishment, primarily the, uh, the leadership in Jesus' day, and he is going to give it to those who will be his body. And so that's what I mean essentially by church. Now let me conclude by with this kind of this, this, this rather interesting final few verses. Um, uh, i trying to think which one it is. I think Luke. I don't think Luke has this section. I think Luke, when he tells this story, I think it's Luke. When Luke tells this parable, just he ends it at verse 10. But, but Matthew loves to add complexity to this. And when the king came in and he looked at the guests, he saw a man there with no wedding garment, which, by the way, in their custom, he would have actually sent. And this guy said, no, I don't want to wear it. Who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. So the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him out to outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Mm. Wow. This king is serious. Yeah, he is. And that lines up actually rather good with what he says in Matthew chapter seven, which is, I don't want to hear all these, you know what I did and you know this, or you know, no, 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 you, you never knew me. I'm going to say to you, I never knew you. I never knew you. It is those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. It is those who are deeply repentant. These are the ones in which the Lord is pleased. Listen, God is difficult to please. I would even argue this. God is impossible to please apart for your recognition and celebration of what he has done for us, particularly in Jesus Christ. So now what? Here is going to be my challenge to you. It is not through our own righteousness that God chooses us. In the same way that God chose Israel for his divine purposes, you've got a text there, he now chooses us. And therefore, we should take seriously the lessons of Israel. 1 Corinthians 10 would be a great place for you to look. Solomon considered it a humbling responsibility to lead God's people. He describes that in 1 Chronicles 1. How much more should we feel the burden for leading the people of God or praying for the shepherds who lead the people of God? Let us not take the wonderful joy of being in his kingdom or leading those in his kingdom. You're a parent? Any of you have a friend that in some way is looking up to you for spiritual direction and guidance? And by the way, if not, Maybe, maybe there is somebody that you should be helping become more like Jesus Christ. And if not, hopefully there's someone that is helping you or some ones that are helping you become more like Jesus Christ. It is critical that we don't follow into the same ruts to the same disobedient, unrepentant routines of those leaders of God's people who have failed before us because I do believe God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Craig Blomberg says it this way, and, I, and hear me, this doesn't mean saved by works at all. But in the kingdom, performance, meaning how we repent and how we obey Jesus, always takes priority over promise, not God's, but our own. I'll do this, I'll do that. No, by our fruit, people will know us, and by our fruit, we demonstrate how much we love and trust in the work of Jesus Christ.
Love you guys. And we will see you Friday when we build a house in town for a young family that needs a house. So if you don't know anything about that, show up Friday around five, Saturday morning. It's not gonna take us long. Here's crazy. In probably less than seven hours, we're going to build a house here. On, and if not, you'll come Sunday and you'll see it. And you'll go, oh, I wish I'd been a part of that. Don't be that guy or that girl. We'll see you Friday and Saturday. Love you guys.